When was the last time you said, I can't take it any longer? Was it about your work culture, your marriage, a chronic illness, a family burden, a neighbor? There comes a time we just draw a line. I'm done with this. Sometimes it's a definite line we follow through on, but, but more often it's a desperate cry for a lifeline, right? I don't know how much longer I can handle it. And some of us, as we look back, we're, we're living in the dark shadow of regret over a decision we made to pack it in. We, we may not yet be admitting it. We're still defending it, justifying it, but inside we are starting to question it. Perhaps I should have hung on there a bit longer. If I'd have known then what I know now, I would have made a different decision. Okay, still somewhat defensive, but, but we're starting to admit it. We do have regrets. Some of us have tried to learn from experiences or perhaps have parents or close friends or mentors or marriage partners who, after hearing us vent our frustration, will sit down with us and say, okay, let, let's just lay out everything we do know. Let's get all the facts, get them clear. If we know, we can figure it out. Or they help us perhaps go to the doctor and say, okay, lay it out there. What's the most likely scenario? I just need to know what I'm up against. God is not into hiding. He doesn't hide from us. In Jesus, he came to us. And he sees and grieves when he sees us trying to hide from him or even hide parts of ourselves from him. It doesn't help. And ultimately, it won't work. God loves us so much, he doesn't want us to have to learn by experience because most often we don't learn from our failures, we repeat them. Ruts we can't get out of. And sometimes our failures don't let us come back. And so not only does God not hide from us, he also doesn't hide anything from us. He puts it all on the table. In our journey through the last book of the Bible, last week, we entered that, that minefield, <laughs> that, that dense forest, the, the dark reality we just rather avoid thinking about. The nameplate on the door of this room in this art gallery of the book of Revelation says, judgment. It's the room we'd rather just go around and get to the, to the uplifting part, the comforting stuff. 11 chapters, beginning at chapter 6, as God opens up about what's coming down. We, we'd like to just ignore this room, not think about it, but God has a better plan. You see, this is stuff we need to know for two reasons, two experiential reasons. Number one, we need to know it so we can know how to avoid what's coming down that we really won't be able to take. And we need it so we can live in the strength, the joy, the confidence of hope through anything and everything that comes down. All of it is written to, to make the bonds, the chains of hope even stronger in our hearts. This room in the gallery is actually one of the most beautifully, artistically, masterfully crafted pieces of literature there is. It's, it's a room with, with three walls of pictures. Pictures of God's judgment. Three groups of seven. Seven seals. Seals of the scroll of the will of God that's in the hands of the Lamb of God. That's chapter 6. And then trumpets announcing God's plan. And finally, seven bowls of wrath. God initiating events that will end all evil for all time. 
Which is a good thing, isn't it? Do we not want evil to end? These sets of sevens are, are sort of like those, those Russian nesting dolls, you know, the matryoshka. Each time as, as we open number seven, we, we see another set. But rather than getting smaller and smaller, it gets bigger, worse, more intense and definitive. But, but another feature in this room called judgment in each of the first two sets, the seals and the trumpets, after number six, is an interlude, a pause. And as you come into the room, it's that interlude scene on which the spotlight is shining, the spotlight of hope. Chapter seven is one of those interludes. As we're going through chapter six, there were two haunting questions that surfaced in the opening of those seals, understandable questions. Number one, those who served God, did what was right, get taken out by evil. What is their cry as they stand under the altar in the throne room? How long, O oh Lord, when will justice be done? When will we be vindicated? And the only answer they get is, well, you've got to wait a while longer. More people still have to die for me. What kind of answer is that? What kind of hope is that? Well, we'll see in chapter 7. Number 2, chapter 6 ends with another question that is just as haunting. It's a question that's hurled into nowhere by those who have been trying to ignore God, to hide from God, to close their minds to God. Those who have been saying, I can take it, I don't need God. But as it all comes down, they realize they can't take it. And just like all of the other seals in chapter 6 that were opened, they were, the opening was initiated by a prayer. The first four seals, it was come, thy kingdom come. The fifth seal is how long? And the opening of seal 6 is also begins with a prayer, but this time it's not a prayer to God. They still won't turn to God. It's a cry, verse 16, to the rocks and the hills. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Which leads to the second question. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's the ultimate, I can't take it any longer, cry. The point John wants us to hear is that we're fooling ourselves if we think we can hide from God. It's no use. Just to claim we don't believe in God doesn't make it true there is no God. For many people, it's, it, it's, it's way too easy of a way out, too convenient, too easy a way to hide. A lot of stuff is coming out these days from security cameras blasted all over the world for all to see that, that people thought, were actions that were hidden, busted. LaDonna says this week that, uh, that the only pictures he's ever going to put on social media again is flowers, right? Folks, those, are, those pictures are nothing compared to what God knows, what God sees, and it should simply remind us that we can't hide from God. So after that great cry of desperation, the interlude of chapter 7 actually answers for us three questions. Number one, who can stand? including how, how can I know that I will be standing? Number two, it gives a fuller answer to that question. 
How long? Why? Why is it that more people still have to die? And number three, what difference does that make to me now? How will I live now, hang in there through anything, if I know I'll be standing when it's all over? So, number one, who can stand? It's all about one thing. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. What did we see last week? We saw four living creatures, four horses, four. The number symbolizing created or cosmic completeness. And now, four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds of the earth, standing, holding back, just waiting to let go. The entire creation is about to turn into a chaotic and cosmic disaster. But then onto the stage comes a fifth angel, not the four angels bringing destruction, a fifth angel holding up his hand saying, wait, wait, and he's waving something in his hand. What's in his hand? Verse 2, then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. The seal of the living God is in his hands. Here, during the opening of the seals of the will of God that's in the hands of the Lamb of God, an angel of God comes bursting onto the scene and says, hold it, wait a little longer. There's another seal we have to remember. What is this seal and how does it answer the question of who can stand? Well, you got to know what comes to John's mind and his reader's mind immediately when they hear this. Their first thought is something like this. Yes, we should have known it. We should have seen it coming. This is our story. This is the way that God writes his story. You see, their minds will go back to how their story started. Coming out of the evil bondage of Egypt. It's called the Exodus. Remember how when God judged Pharaoh for his mistreatment of God's people, which was an indicator of his rejection of God? When the angel of death comes upon every household, all of those who had sacrificed a lamb and painted the lamb's blood on the doorframe of the entrance to their house were passed over by the angel of death. Their doorposts had the mark. Who can stand when it all comes down? All those with the mark. The seal of the living God, which is the blood of the Lamb of God, which makes sense to them. This is, this is how God works. And then they would have thought about the teaching that they had heard or read from the Apostle Paul recorded in the letters of the New Testament. Every single person who accepts the judgment of God on Jesus for them and places themselves under Jesus, God places them in Jesus, in his family, his kingdom, his life, and Along with that, listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. When you believed, said Paul, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The seal 
is the Holy Spirit as a deposit God put inside of us, marking us, guaranteeing our inheritance. Seals in the ancient world were common, very common. And most of the time, seals were about two things. Number one, they were about possession, ownership. And number two, they were about protection, security. Jesus bought us with a price. We are owned by God, and God has put a down payment in us in the form of his soul and Holy Spirit as his sign of ownership, his down payment guaranteeing our safe arrival. Do you think he's going to walk away from his investment? Do you not think he will make sure his investment pays off? Several chapters later in, in Ephesians 4 verse 30, Paul reminds us that the seal of the Holy Spirit also teaches us and pulls us towards growth in becoming like Jesus, not wanting to disappoint God. This one more clear statement in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth that, that ties this seal of the Spirit to the question of who can stand. In chapter, and actually it's in 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, we read this in verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing us, guaranteeing what it is to come. Who can stand? Everyone who is sealed by God through the spirit of God will stand. Paul adds one thing to this idea in Colossians chapter 3. When he says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Not hidden in the sense of lost, no longer you, but hidden in the sense of totally, completely secure. So if the point of the desperate cry is to help us see that it's foolish to think we can hide from God, that's only half of the answer. The seal gives us the real point, the full answer. You never have to try to hide from God when you know you are hidden in God. I remember reading the story of a guy who went on a solo sailing trip across the Atlantic. And I tried to find it this week, but I couldn't find it. But as I recall it, he was, he was out on the ocean and sailed into a storm. He knew he couldn't sail around it and it was futile to turn around and try and outrun it. And so with, with confidence, he sailed right into this major storm with confidence because he knew the sailboat that he had was built for the worst storm. There, there came a time when he could no longer sail. The sail was actually ripped off. And so he, he went below, sealed the hatch, and rode it out. The sailboat turned over multiple times in the next few days. He lost all everything, uh, all contact with land. When the storm was over, he went outside. His mast had been broken off. The entire deck was bare. But he was safe, sealed. And that's what it is that these people are hearing. And what is it that they are singing? Well, it's, it's later in, uh, in the um, second part of the vision, verse 10, they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is it that belongs to our God? Look at it. Judgment belongs to our God? No. Salvation 
belongs to our God. You know what that means? It means we, don't, we didn't see the full title of this room when we went in. Did, did, did any of us catch it? All we saw was the word judgment, but the nameplate on the room really says hope in spite of necessary judgment. Hope. Hope for whom? How inclusive is this hope? Sealed sounds so, so exclusive. Is that really fair? Well, this vision speaks to that as well. And that's what this, if you've read, if you're reading along in chapter 7, that's what the genealogy is all about. Now, as I said last week, I'm not really an art gallery kind of guy, but I'm not particularly a genealogy kind of guy either. I'm, I'm with those of you who, when we come to a genealogy in the Bible, it's just so easy to skip over it, or, or at best just to skim it. Now, I get their importance. They remind us that the Bible's not a myth. It's rooted in history. Oh, yeah, it, it shows God fulfilled his promises to his people, and, and that's all cool. But it's sort of, you know, that's not my story, not my reality. But when you take a closer look at this geology, it's actually some pretty amazing stuff. You see, for Jewish people, genealogies were huge. They made statements. For one thing, genealogies were, well, well, they were sort of like a depth chart in a sports team roster. Two of the things you checked in a genealogy were, is everyone still there? Has someone been cut since the last game? If so, why? Number two, what's the order? Who's been moved up? or down on the depth chart, and why? Let's look at this geology, genealogy. If every good Jew knew this genealogy well, it's the 12 tribes of God's Old Testament people, but this, this genealogy, this final genealogy, the 12 tribes of God's people, this final version is different from every genealogy John has ever read or heard. And it's the differences that matter. By the way, who is this genealogy of? Verse 4, of those who are sealed. So let's look at it. The first glaring thing, oh my goodness, look who's number one on the chart. The firstborn is always number one. That's a, that's a cultural given. Not this time. Reuben was the firstborn, but Judah is number one. It's the only time in the Bible that Judah is first in the genealogy. Why is Judah first? Because what is this book? It's a revelation of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a clear statement that you are only sealed if you are in Jesus. There's no room for anything around the throne that doesn't have Jesus as the center. Order is really important. But there's also somebody missing. A whole tribe is missing in this genealogy. Dan. Where's Dan? Can you imagine getting a family Chris Christmas card from some close family friends and handwritten inside is Merry Christmas and it names mom and dad by name and all the kids except for, except for Dan. How do you feel if you're Dan? I always knew they didn't like me, right? Scarred for life. 
Can you imagine a wealthy family having a, a meeting in the corporate lawyer's office and opening the will after mom and dad are gone and one of the siblings is missing in the will? That's huge. But this is not a mistake. This is God giving this genealogy. It's an intentional omission. Why? Because this is not about Israel as a human people. This is about Israel that had kept their covenant and were truly God's people. And Dan was the tribe in Israel that was, what, that was known most for idol worship. They never truly allowed their hearts to be captured by God. Not in. There's no room around the throne for anyone who doesn't accept God's story as their story. That's not, that does not bow down to the living God. Oh, and by the way, Dan isn't just omitted from the roster. He's replaced by someone who's brought up from the minor leagues. There had to be 12 on the roster, just like 12 apostles. And when Judah was eliminated, he had to be replaced. Who's he replaced with? Well, he's replaced with Manasseh, who was one of Joseph's sons when it came time to to, to the genealogy roster. Manasseh was sort of sometimes in and sometimes out. What, what was unique about Manasseh that put him on the bubble? It was Manasseh's mother. Manasseh's mother, Joseph's wife, was an outsider. She wasn't just an outsider. She was an Egyptian. From the people who had enslaved Israel for years. Sealed. There are several other unique features in this genealogy, but one more is really huge. Judah's first, then Reuben, and then Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. That one would have been huge for John. Reuben, the firstborn, was always first. Gad, Asher, and Naphtali were always down near the bottom of the list. And there was a reason for that. You see, Jacob, the, the father of these 12 sons, had two wives. Remember, Jacob was a schemer. But the big joke of Jacob's life was that he had been out-schemed by his father-in-law. Jacob fell in love with the youngest daughter. Beautiful, char charming, just perfect. And he asked for her hand. And her father said, sure, it'll cost you seven years of labor. But Rachel was worth it. He worked for seven years. They put on a big wedding. And when, he, Rachel, uh, when um, uh, Jacob takes off the veil... It's not Rachel. It's Leah, the oldest daughter. Jacob goes to his father-in-law and said, what's going on? His father-in-law said, I don't know where your real head it was when you asked me, but do you think I'd marry off the youngest before the oldest? Sorry. Jacob said, I want Rachel. His father-in-law said, well, yeah, you can have Rachel. It'll be another seven years. And Jacob did it. And he set his wives up for a very frustrating life together. But but what does that have to do with this genealogy? Well, most of these sons were born to Jacob by Rachel or Leah, except for three who were born by a concubine. These sons were looked down on in the family. They had lesser status in the family and in the inheritance, the will. And so in the genealogy of Jacob, they were down on the list. These sons born to the concubine yeah, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And where are they on the final roster? On Jesus' depth chart, moved right up 
3, 4, and 5, right after Judah and the firstborn Reuben. Can you see what Jesus is saying to John? I have not come for people of status. I have not come for people who think they're in because they go to church. In me, all are equal and can be in. The misfits and the marginalized. I have come to, to lift up the fallen, to elevate the marginalized. I have come for sinners. Friends, this is your story. I hope it's your story. I, I don't know what you see in this list, but one thing I see is that the good news of Jesus is the most inclusive message there is. Oh, yeah. Nobody's there who does not opt in. But everyone's invited to the party. Everyone who can stand, everyone can and will be standing at the same level. It's not based on who we are or based on what we've done. It's based on what we see in Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. As I read Revelation 7, Revelation 7, I just totally resonate with a guy I read this week who said, if the book of Revelation doesn't make you want to join Handel in singing Worthy is the Lamb, then perhaps you have the wrong understanding of the book. But as we said, this chapter also gives a fuller answer to the question of those who have died for taking a stand with Jesus and their cry is how much longer? The answer that they were given in chapter 6 is a bit, well, perhaps it seems a little insensitive. Remember it? Chapter 6, verse 11, you just got to wait for a few more people to die. What kind of hope is that? Well, this interlude speaks to that. It's what ties the next two scenes in the vision together. It's also about what this genealogy is, about how many are there? 144,000. A lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of arguments held about who are the 144,000. Let's just make it simple and clear. As we've seen in the book of Revelation, which is common with the kind of literature that it is, numbers are not usually, not normally statistics. They are most often symbols. Four winds, Four corners, not, not a scientific statement, a, a, a geological statistic. It's, it's symbolic, a cosmic whole. Seven, perfection, completeness in God. Twelve, the complete people of God. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. What's, what's 144,000? It's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Basically, it means it's a lot of people. The complete number of God's people. It's like Jesus said about forgiveness, 70 times 7. It's not a statistic you count. It's a symbol you understand. It's like, forget the counting. Which fits with the next thing we see in the chapter, the next part of the vision, which should be a little familiar by now because it says that John hears this genealogy and then after this, he turns to look and he sees something way more bigger, more powerful than he thought he would see. Remember chapter 1? It says he hears a voice like a trumpet and he looks and turns and sees this awesome vision of Jesus among the lampstands. Remember chapter 5? He hears a lion roar and he turns to look at it and he sees a lamb that is slain, a standing lamb that is slain with the will of God in his hands. And now he hears about 144,000 from the tribes of Israel who are truly God's people. 
And he sees an uncountable number doing what? Standing, not fearing they won't stand, not relieved that they made it, but standing in victory, white robes, just like the people under the altar. So that means that it's together with those martyrs who said, how long? And what's the mood now? It's not how long. It's joy. They're waving palm branches. It's a, it's a victory party. We won. We won. No, the lamb on the throne has won. So how does that help John? How does that help us process the cry of the martyrs? How long? Well, at the time John is writing, there are less than 100,000 followers of Jesus in the world. Way less, possibly under 50,000. And going down, shrinking. And the cry of the martyrs is, how long do we have to let this go on? It's over. But what John sees is this vast, countless number of people worshiping on the throne. What John sees is that it's not over. It's actually only just begun. What John sees is that the blood of the martyrs really is the seed of the church. And what do we have today? Well, today we have over 2.3 billion people alive who declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. 31% of the world's population. On the other side of the coin, more people died for their faith in Jesus in the 20th century than all of the previous 19th century since John sees this vision. Oh yes, more people have died. But many, many, many more are still opting in. And if you would have asked any one of those people who were crying out, how long? whether that would be worth it, every single one of them would have said, whoa, bring it on. For them, it not, would no longer be how much longer do we have to wait. It would be, whoa, we can hardly wait. Can you see how this is all about hope? How long until all who will come have come? And you can't see it now, but it's way way more than you could ever imagine. What is the question we ask on this side? We say, what kind of a God would allow that? That's not the view from the other side. Verse 10, they are joyfully and energetically singing, Yahoo! Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. They're not saying, was it worth it? They are saying, we were right. We were right to stand. We were enabled to stand. And it was totally worth it to stand. And around them is all of creation. Not saying, oh, you poor guys, you had to suffer so much. They are joining with them. Verse 11. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever." And ever, amen. It will totally be worth it to hang in there. So, very quickly, how can I live now? How can I hang in there regardless of what comes down? If I'm living in the hope of the seal, if I know that I'll be standing when it's over, well, it's the way the chapter ends, beginning at verse 13. He said to them, These are they 
who have come out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation, this is not talking about some period of history in the future. It's talking, it's simply mega tribulation, which happens to all the time through history. He said to them, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's what's happening around the throne in the unseen realm. But I think they are saying these things because as they look in the rearview mirror, it gives them a perspective on their life of faith on earth with Jesus. It tells us what faith living looks like when we are sealed in Jesus. Three things that just pop out in this song. Three things Jesus is that he does for us to keep us living in hope regardless of how much we feel we can't take it any longer. Number one, he who sits on the throne will shelter them. Shelter them with his presence. When we are sealed in Jesus, we are, what does Paul say? Hidden with Christ in God. So rather than seeing what is against you, what is being taken from you, will you see the Jesus who in the middle of your frustration is sheltering you by his presence, sheltering you not from everything, that's what we want, but sheltering us through what's coming at you from every direction. Is there a place in your life right now you need to see Jesus doing that? Verse 16, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. Sheltered and totally satisfied in him. He is enough. We just wrapped up our first online Alpha course this week, and, and the last session is called, What About the Church? As we were discussing experiences that we've had with church, one of the young men in our group said something like this, you know, I've totally changed my view of church. I, I tend to think, I don't feel like going, I don't need this, I don't have time for that. But then I go, and it's like, here's what he said, it's like I find myself satisfied by something I didn't even know I needed. Isn't that beautiful? It's like it fills a hole that I, that I didn't even realize was there. That's Jesus. It reminded me, as I've said before, of when our son would come home from school as a junior higher and he'd be grouchy and irritable. And, and I would say to him, buddy, that's enough. Time to tune up that attitude. LaDonna, well, always wiser than me, would say, Mike, you're hungry. Let's get some food in you. That's how Jesus is. He's, he's the one when we go to him who satisfies, who fills the hole we, we didn't even realize was there. Can you see a way that Jesus might be offering that to you right now? Sheltering from me from what comes at me, satisfying what's inside of me, and number three, shepherded by him in everything. Verse 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He is so wanting to be your shepherd guide, your leader, which means pointing me, nudging me, pulling me in his way. Psalm 23, 
great shepherd psalm guiding me along the right paths. Not the easy ones. Not the ones I would necessarily choose, but paths that develop me and paths that make me productive and useful and paths that lead me home. Are you living in the hope of the seal? Seeing how Jesus is sheltering you, not from, but through what's coming down from every direction. Seeing how he's wanting to satisfy your inner being and fill the hole that you didn't even realize was there and you're trying to fill with something else. Shepherding you along the path that will take you home. He's not going to let you go. He is, as, as the song we sometimes sing, my lighthouse, the peace in my troubled sea, I will trust the promise, you will carry me safe to shore. Friends, that's what I would call hostaged by hope.